all across America and around the world. This is Veterans Radio. This is Veterans Radio. Welcome to Veterans Radio. I am Jim Fawson. I'm the officer of the deck today. We've got some great programs for you. I think you'll find very interesting. We always want to remind you, you can find more about Veterans Radio at its Facebook site or by going to veteransradio.net where we're on the web 24-7. You can find a lot of our podcasts there as well. We post new ones every Tuesday, so you can get a new story, a new interview, something you didn't know before by going to veteransradio.net. And before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. First up, we want to thank National Veteran Business Development Council, nvbdc.org. It was established to certify both service-disabled and veteran-owned businesses. You'll find out how they can help your business by going to nvbdc.org. We want to thank Legal Help for Veterans. Legal Help for Veterans fights for veterans' disability rights all across the nation. You can reach them at 800-693-4800 or on the web at LegalHelpForVeterans.com. We want to welcome to Veterans Radio today Marty Strong, a Navy veteran of 20 years, a SEAL, a, a spent his time there and then went into the business world where he's both a been a ceo and a strategic guy and uh somehow has found time to write both uh fiction and non-fiction works and we're here to talk about one of them be visionary but marty welcome to veterans radio hey james thanks for having me well i'm glad uh, glad to have you on but let, let's go back to uh you, as i said you spent 20 years 21 years in the service as a navy seal from uh, 1975 to 1996 that would have been about the end of the vietnam war but wh- why did you find yourself uh, in the navy and why 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 the seals and why the stay <laughs> <laughs> well it was pretty simple i was uh, a kid in a divorced family and i lived in nebraska there was nothing in nebraska and so a couple of friends of my of mine went into uh, the mall on a sunday and we all went in to join the marine corps and they showed us a, uh, a film, and that was about 125 pounds. My two buddies were like middle linebackers. So one of the two guys decided to join the Marine Corps, one guy chickened out, and I decided I'm not going to be able to carry those packs and everything, so I'm going to join the Navy. This always cracks me up when guys in the middle of the country with no ocean anywhere think, I'm going to join the Navy. Nebraska doesn't have any oceans. It doesn't have any big ships. What were you thinking? <laughs> well, escape. That's what, we're, <laughs> that's what we were thinking. Um, Something opposite you know, than Nebraska. <laughs> well, you have you have the Cornhusker football team, and uh, and then if you're a hunter, you've got quail hunting and pheasant hunting. You know, some parts of the year. Other than that, you know, you, you, unless you're a farmer, there's not a lot there. So, yeah, the, you know, we were just trying to get what we used to say, get, escape from the square states, and. Uh, and get to someplace more exciting and get into a, uh, at least get in the service for four years and just, as they used to say, get out and see the world. But my, my dad was in the Navy during the Korean War for four years, and he had kind of influenced me in that direction. I just thought, you know, my friends talked me into the Marine Corps, and then, then I had to check it out and join the Navy instead. 
Well, you d- didn't turn out to be any chicken here. As, uh, as I said, your, uh, your career path took you into the SEALs. Tell us a little bit about that and your, your experiences uh, there. Yeah, I mean, the irony is uh, a little strange. You know, I, I saw a film with guys carrying 100-pound backpacks and said, that's not for me, and I ended up 20 years doing the same, same thing I saw in the film. Um, yeah, so I, um, I went to Radar and Air Traffic Control School. Those were my guaranteed uh, uh, schools when I joined up. You can sign up for those kinds of things. And uh, I guess sometime when I was in boot camp, I wanted to take a swim test, and I uh, was told you can't just take a swim test. You have to get involved in this other test that's going on, which has swimming in it. And then when you're done, you can go back to your boot camp company. So I did that. And then I went to 17 weeks of uh, air traffic control radar school. And when I graduated, they give you your orders uh, taped to a big yellow packet that has all your medical and everything else in it. And they handed me a ticket. They said, Report no later than 0730 tomorrow morning to underwater demolition seal training, Coronado, California. I was supposed to be going to the Mediterranean to a ship. <laughs> so I got to the airport, called my dad. I don't know how many quarters that it took, but my dad, being an Navy guy, originally said, look, son, they call them orders for a reason. You need to get out there, find a chief petty officer, tell them what's going on, and they'll sort it all out. I said, all right. And that's what I did, and that – Chief Petty Officer turned out to be a master chief, and he talked me into staying and volunteering for the SEAL teams. Well, it worked out pretty well for you, didn't it? Yeah, it did. I mean, I wish I could say I had all these aspirations, and I planned and thought about it and woke up every morning wanting to be a SEAL, but that's not how I got into it. Well, as I said, you uh, you, you stayed for 21, uh, got out and got into the business world, um, and also became uh, quite an accomplished uh, writer. Talk to us a little bit about your business career that sort of leads up to these two books uh, in particular be visionary and we'll come back to that but I let's give everybody where where did this seal uh, come up with all this business experience and I should mention that um, you graduated from Villanova's University master black belt lean six Sigma program you have a degree undergraduate in business administration and a graduate degree in management so if you're sitting here thinking what's this guy got to tell me he's been there on the on the ground he's done the education and he's been in the business world uh, that's what brings him to uh, have some ideas to express but tell us about your business career well, you know, the precursor, you know, my experience in the 20 years uh, I spent in the SEAL teams, I, I again, kind of serendipity, I stumbled into a job at in a shop that was brand new called the Strategy and Tactics Group. Uh, the SEALs had only had an admiral, uh, which consolidated with the East and West Coast SEALs for the first time in the mid-80s. Before that, there was no admiral, and the East and West Coast SEALs reported to the Pacific and Atlantic Command, so we didn't work together. Um and the strategy and tactics group was all about thinking big thoughts and looking at the horizon and trying to see what the, the new roles might be for SEALs and, and, and giving white papers, writing white papers for the Admiral staff. And that's when I started getting into the big picture thinking. At the same time, uh, I already finished my uh, undergraduate degree. I was a senior enlisted guy at the end of my first uh, 10 years. I went to Officer's Canada School. And then when I came back a few years later to the center in Coronado to be in the strategy tactics group. I finished my master's degree while I was also learning about strategy from senior officers and writing a lot of thought pieces. So that all kind of came together and 
got me prepared for both writing to convince and, and to illuminate and to explain, uh, to think in a, in a bigger picture manner. And because most, most younger officers in any service are all thinking tactically. It's all technical and tactical. And it's very short, short duration mission focus. So that was, that was unique. And I was really happy that it happened because when I left and retired, I got into managing money and it turns out that you can't manage money unless you have clients and you can't have clients unless you learn how to sell. And I didn't know how to sell. So nothing about selling was taught in my undergraduate or graduate program. And I didn't learn that in the SEAL team. So I had to learn from scratch from mentors and anybody else I could, I could get inspiration from. How do I walk up to a stranger and convince him to give me his life savings? So that was a huge hurdle when I got out and, and my education and even most of my Navy experience didn't help me at all. What I found did apply though, was that time I spent the strategy and tactics group and meshing that up with looking at people's investments and looking at the, their time horizons. And I realized I know how to plan short, medium and long term, And I can apply that to investment uh, advice and I found my niche, and then that, that's when I kind of settled in in my second career. Well, really, and that's one of the pearls of wisdom we like to pass along here on Veterans Radio, because you, you look at it and go, well, I didn't have any military experience in this area, selling, but I had a bunch of military experience over here in long-term thinking and planning. How do I apply that to my civilian life now? And I think that's what a lot of guys in transition have to go through and really think about, how did I get from here to there? And obviously, again, this is one of those situations where it, it worked out pretty damn well for you. Um, as you as you went through that, though, um, one of the things that uh, you also developed is, uh, and I think it sounded like, a, 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 again, an outgrowth of a strategy and tactics group, this desire to write. And you wrote uh, nonfiction. I, I'm sorry, you wrote fiction, um, Seal Strike series and Time Warrior series, where, where did that inspiration and uh, chutzpah come from? Well, I had a uh, an epiphany, I guess, 2017, after reading the uh, the Four Hour Work Week, and the um, the book laid out lots of different ways for you to maximize and optimize your your daily time. And one of the things was to do a survey or an audit for seven days of of how you're spending your time. And the, the point of it was to find things that were frivolous and not real valuable. And, and I'm looking at this thing and I'm reading it and I said, okay, I'm going to do that for seven days. And I was still watching economic shows and I was still listening to geopolitical type shows and I was reading books like that and I was watching the TV news all the time because in my prior professions, you had to be on top of what was going on. But in my current profession, I don't have to. I mean, I manage a healthcare company and a government contracting training company, I don't need to know what Bloomberg thinks about, you know, the yen. And I realized I had about five and a half to six hours of time I was committing to this, uh, this pursuit of kind of, at that time, not very leverageable knowledge. And I could turn that around. That's, that's the surplus that you build by doing that survey. So the other thing you do with it is you write a bucket list and, and the concept was to live your bucket list. So instead of waiting for the big balloon payoff at the end when you retire, when you don't want to spend any money and maybe you're not healthy enough to do anything on your bucket list, make your bucket list now. So one of my bucket list items was to write a novel, 
and one of them was to write a, a business book. So I decided I was going to take my five hours or five and a half hours, and I was going to figure out a way to write a book. And what I did was just set up a program. Every day at 5.30 in the morning, I would write for about 45 minutes, uh, anywhere from 300 to 700 words, and I did that seven days a week, and continued doing that until I wrote the first draft of the first time travel book. And uh, once I got through editing and it was eventually published, I go, wow, okay, I'm gonna start another one and another one and another one. So I ended up writing four time travel books and five SEAL um, novels. And somewhere before I finished the fourth SEAL novel, I started writing the business book. So this, the, the time travel novels and the SEAL books were basically just fun for me. And you get to meet a lot of characters in the military and you get to see, I was in over 40 countries when I was in the military. So there's a lot of life experience, a lot of characters. So character development isn't hard. Dialogue, it's not too hard because you just met all these, these, these kind of zany different you know human beings. And it all just kind of came together in my writing. Well, and part of the reason I wanted you to talk about that is because I don't want anybody to think you're two business books, Be Nimble and Be Visionary, which just came out. Uh, are going to be like stiff academic. I'll, I'll never be able to read my way through it. This, you know, this guy's probably a technical writer because it doesn't it doesn't read that way, and that isn't your uh, background and upbringing, if you will. Not as not as a novelist for sure, because you get comfortable with stories and story arcs and communicating. I mean, you really have to communicate. Everything in a story is is all about conveying what it is you're trying to convey and get the the reader to receive it the way you want them to receive it so the whole thing keeps moving at the in the direction of the pace that you want so everybody's invested in it and so i was i learned how to technically write i mean when you're in the military it's very stilted um academic even blunt writing and it took me a while to get comfortable with a more kind of go with the flow kind of writing what they call uh uh, stream of consciousness writing, which is kind of how I write. I don't over-organize everything. So when I sat down to look at the, the business books, I started thinking, what kind of books do I like? What kind of books do I like to read? And I decided I, I don't like reading textbook style or academic style where they're citing everybody else's opinions about everything. I want to read a book that's kind of written by a thought leader that maybe have completely wild, crazy ideas about things because that's the only way I'm going to get exposed to those wild and crazy ideas. And those books are, they communicate through a narrative. It's almost like, you know, you have somebody that's laying out a story. It's organized in more like a story arc instead of chunk, like a, a linear progression in a book or a training course. So I laid all that stuff out and I said, that's the kind of book I want to write. And that's what I did with Be Nimble. And I was able to follow through with the same style and Be Visionary. Yeah, no, it really does come through as a different type of approach. And in Be Visionary, the subtitle, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. And I think the place to start is for you to explain, uh, Marty Strong, to our veteran radio listeners, what do you mean by optimization in an age of optimization? So optimization is a standard business term means it means basically to improve to the point of hyper efficiency every element of a business or an organizational um, organizational behavior towards some goal usually it's a financial goal so it, it used to be done by you know managing by walking around by 
looking for behaviors that looked like they were bad habits or they were wasteful. And, and then eventually you started getting systems that started counting, collecting, and accumulating enough data in the reports that people could say, okay, now I can sit at my desk and see we're wasting fuel, we're wasting hours here, we're wasting manpower. And in the last 10 years, it's really gotten, gotten hyper-enabled uh, through high technology. So you have AI-enabled software, you've got all kinds of things that are putting dashboards in front of leaders, but it's telling them exactly what they're doing, how well they're doing, in the rear of your mirror. And nothing about optimization is about looking at the future. It's all about how do we do last week, last month? How do we do last week compared to a week, three weeks ago, last month compared to last year, same month? And so you start getting to a rhythm if you're kind of focused on optimization and seeing optimization as the objective. And it's and really short. It, it, it ends up being short term. Perfectly optimized. Whatever your financial goal, whatever your other goals are, you're going to achieve them. That's not the way it really works. And, and it's really uh, optimization kind of gets you myopic and short term. And one of you, one of your chapters, uh, number 12, actually, uh, is titled Strategy is the Enemy of Optimization. Tell us what your thinking is. Well, it's, it's cultural. Human, human beings are human beings. If you get a room full of people that spent their time doing everything I just described, and they're very happy and very proficient at it, and they get bonuses for doing it, and you'd get four or five other people come into the room that are vision visionaries and strategists and even business development type people that are looking at the competition and where the competition's going, where the market's going. You're going to have a clash because to vote with vision, to decide and to commit resources with vision and to invest in a future that you don't have perfect knowledge of is risk is risk taking. And you can't really mitigate that risk in the same way you can when you're looking at an optimization approach or process. So basically, you've got two groups that are mentally and operationally opposing each other. One wants to lock everything down, tighten everything up, and not spend a single penny they don't have to. The other group wants to invest, expand, change the product line, maybe jump into another market, which is all high risk. So that's really where kind of the war starts between optimization and strategy. The real problem is, is when organizations, and this happens a lot, especially in publicly traded companies, when organizations start to see that short-term gratification, you know, measuring week to week or quarter to quarter, and they stop, completely stop either hiring people or even contemplating the, the future. And then that happens a lot. So what they're basically doing is they're optimizing, they're going down a railroad track into the future, but they have no idea the train's coming in from the other direction because they can't see it. Well, this is this up. is this is a situation that you were living as you were writing. You write, "quote uh, I was when I sat down to write, be visionary. I was directly involved in a battle for the future. My adversaries were, you guessed it, optimizers. They had little faith or interest in the future. It was all about short-term measurement and short-term gratification. So you're kind of writing what what you lived, weren't you? Yes, because if you were going to take a leap into the future and you're going to invest, you need investors or you need bankers. Investors come in all kinds of sizes and shapes and all levels of risk tolerance, but bankers are pretty much consistent. They, aren't, they, don't, take, uh, they don't take too many risks. So if you're trying to explain to a banker you know, why you think the iPhone is something you could build and it's going to be revolutionary, the bankers won't, they won't give you the time of day. You'll be done. If you talk to an investor, you better find an investor that has deep enough pockets, a long enough um, investment horizon that they'll take the whole trip with you 
and see your vision for them to fund it. And maybe that's 5% of all investors out there. So it's, it's difficult, even if you have a fantastic idea, because you're dealing with the people that can fund and fuel and, and uh, you know, put capital to that idea that are, again, on the opposite side of kind of the, the mental, psychological risk-taking equation. Well, we're talking to Marty Strong, who wrote Be Visionary, Strategic Leadership in the Age of Optimization. This is a follow-up to his Be Nimble business uh, book, and he's talked about all of the uh, and how he uh, uh, wrote so many uh, fiction uh, titles. But I want to switch gears to something that's kind of today's world uh, as well. Uh, We talked a little bit about it earlier, Marty, and that is we all live now in a world of hybrid work or remote work, work from home, work from wherever you want. As you think about that new world, how does that factor into being nimble and being a visionary? Well, by definition, considering something other than the traditional way to do anything puts you kind of leaning into the nimble or agile leadership category. To, to accept change and to modify behaviors, to change processes, procedures, policies, et cetera, or strategies based on the reality that you either see or the reality you think you see coming down the road, it takes courage and it takes a certain mindset to you know, do, do battle with everybody that's going to say, no, we don't need to do any of these things. Everything's fine. So you, you know, in the, when the pandemic hit, it was a strange, uh, I guess, convergence at the time. You had things like Zoom and Salesforce and all kinds of other, you know, capabilities that were on an optimized cloud-based uh, technology, which three years earlier might not have worked as well it wasn't as secure but now it was so now you could do financial operations you could do accounting you could do sales you could do all kinds of things through the cloud which means you didn't have to be inside your office with a t1 line feeding your server you could do it from your home because most people's homes do not have the bandwidth to, to push say a payroll file through so there's all kinds of little technology things that kind of crept towards that moment and what 9-11 excuse me 9/11, which what, what the pandemic did it essentially triggered everybody to jump onto these different capabilities that existed, and it was the right time, the right place. So by doing that, now everybody can work from home. Everybody can do almost all kinds of work from home. It used to be very specific knowledge work. Now you can do a lot of other things. And then you end up with this either a purely virtual workforce or a hybrid, depending on what the functions are. So I went to... I mean, I sent everybody home in March of 2020, and eventually by 20, middle of 21, we had about six to 10 people coming into the office out of 60. So I started downsizing the, uh, the square footage and footprint from 21,000 change down to now we're at 6,800 in two locations. So I basically am only down to about 12 people that come into a physical office. Now we're scattered in a lot of states and everything, so we were semi-virtual from a management control standpoint before, but that that's what we've done and we haven't missed a beat, which, you know, I, I'm a little bit more flexible than a lot of people. Uh, some of the people on my board weren't real happy with it. And uh, they said, well, as soon as you can get everybody back in the office, but I couldn't see why and there was no reason. Yeah. So the creative, the creative process, we get everybody in the office. If we need to work on something like that, we'll fly in wherever they'll fly in and we'll get in a room and, We'll start, you know, brainstorming on a whiteboard just like anybody would. 
But for day-to-day stuff, they don't need to physically be sitting there. Yeah, no, and it really did in just a couple of years. It really compressed the speed at which people had to adapt new approaches, new new technology, and new leadership views. Um, some expressed, as you said, by your board of like, everybody's going to be in the office, and others like, yeah, we only need those in the office who really need to be here. So kind of an interesting adaptation to the issues that you're writing about in Be Nimble and, and now in Be Visionary. Uh, Marty Strong, if folks are interested in these books uh, and following some of the things that you're doing, uh, where would you direct them? So they're, they're on Amazon, but the easiest way is to go to my author website at martystrongbenimble.com. All of my novels proceeds go to the Seal Veterans Foundation. Uh, the, the two business books are you know, part of my business, so they don't, but the, uh, the nine novels do. And you can get access to both the business books and my novels and my articles and other things at uh, martystrongbenimble.com. Well, it's an interesting arc from uh, a kid trying to get out of Nebraska and ends up in the Navy, spends 21 years, moves into the business world and kind of has to find his way. And ultimately he says, hey, one of the things I want to do on my bucket list is I want to be an author, both of uh, fiction and nonfiction. You've accomplished all of that, and I hope uh, it motivates some of our veteran radio listeners to say, hey, if this knucklehead from uh, Nebraska can do it, maybe I, maybe I can too. <laughs> Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Well, thanks for spending some time with us here on uh, Veterans Radio today, Marty. We really do appreciate it. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Veterans Radio today. I am Jim Fossone. It's been a pleasure to be your host. I'm a veterans disability lawyer at Legal Help for Veterans, and you can reach us at 800 693 or LegalHelpForVeterans.com on the web. You can follow Veterans Radio on Facebook and listen to its podcasts and Internet radio shows by going to VeteransRadio.net. And until next time, you are dismissed. If you have a VA claim denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals, contact Legal Help for Veterans at 1-800-693-4800. They're experts in handling cases before the U.S. Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. Their number again, 1-800-693-4800. We again want to thank our national sponsors, the National Veterans Business Development Council, nvbdc.org, VA Ann Arbor Health Care System, the Vietnam Veterans of America, Charles S. Kettles Chapter, Ann Arbor, Michigan, VFW Graf O'Hara Post 423 in Ann Arbor, and the American Legion Press Corn Post 46, also in Ann Arbor. We appreciate all your support. You can go to veteransradio.net, click on the sponsor level, and continue to support keeping Veterans Radio on the air. And until next time, you are dismissed. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.